this is Paul Fischer with Marcelo Massimini, yep. one of our speakers. And Marcelo, what was really exciting about, about your talk is in some sense you, you started with this whole concept about let's say how the complexity of, of the brain and brain dynamics in the end would be relevant for understanding of consciousness. And in particular, this, this idea that goes back then to Giulio Tononi, um, where it would be about let's say this, this ability of differentiation and integration of these brain states and some optimal, optimal balance between the two that would yeah. be unique for consciousness. So how, how does that concept, how can, do you turn such a concept into actually a practical experimental paradigm? Well, um, we thought about, I mean, how, how do you uh, assess or evaluate on a coarse, la on a coarse grain, of course, uh, whether a structure is complex or not, you have two options. First option is to observe the spontaneous activity the structure generates. And if this activity is uh, ever-changing and uh, interesting and different over time, then you can say, okay, it is likely that this structure has a complex structure. But, uh, but this is not a given because, okay, uh, what does it mean complex? It means, we said, uh, it has to be integrated and at the same time differentiated. And if I just observe a structure uh, providing me with interesting signal, I will never know whether these signals are arising from a whole structure or just from separate elements, for instance, generating random noise or having intrinsic properties. So uh, the only way to make sure uh, that a set of elements it's constituting a, a unique, uh, causally integrated structure is probably to perturb, and uh, because that's the only way that I can know that elements are connected. So I have to perturb one element, activate one element, and see how this activity propagates. And uh, if the activity propagates in an interesting way, which is rich and ever-changing, then I'm sure that the complexity that I see is not random, and it's not just the result of a separated element which are active on their own, but it's the uh, result of an interacting uh, set of elements. So this is, I think, the advantage of the perturbation. You don't take integration for granted, and then whatever you see in terms of complexity, you can interpret it as complexity of a whole structure. So there you get information that is the richness of the pattern, and you make sure that this richness comes from a whole set of elements that is integrated. So that's, I think, the advantage of the perturbation. But so now we have this the perturbation analysis that, that you propose to look at, um, let's say, the more detailed properties of this, of this complex network. Um, and then what are the signatures you will be looking for? So now here we go, we're going to perturb the system. Yeah. Uh, you're doing that with, with the transcranial magnetic yeah. stimulation. Um, but now what are you looking for? Yeah, so uh, we look for, first of all, we, are, uh, we have to do statistics and extract only the activity that is causally related to the perturbation. So that's why we do, we average many single trials and we get rid of uh, random noise or spontaneous activity. Uh, then we do non-parametric statistics and we extract really the pattern that is due to the perturbation and at this point we look for uh, basically uh, the degree of complexity of this 
spatial temporal pattern. And a straightforward way to do so is to just uh, uh, compute how much information in terms of bits you need to describe the pattern. And there, there are several algorithms, and they mainly come from uh, um, basically the same algorithm we use with zip files, uh, like lampless complexity. These are uh, algorithms of the com complex uh, algorithmic complexity, and we apply these algorithms, and uh, and we see how much information you need to describe, and we assume that a simple structure, uh, whether this structure is uh, disintegrated or homogeneous will give rise to a simple pattern that you can describe with a little amount of bits, while complex structure made of different elements that are different at the same time interacting will give rise to a pattern that is complex and you, it takes a lot of information to describe it. So we come up with a number and we say, okay, let's see if this number then correlates with the level of consciousness that we can manipulate through uh, different means by putting a subject to sleep or anesthetizing subject and so on and so forth. But then, in, in some sense, you are making your analysis independent of the spatial temporal organization of the brain because it is just about, okay, how many bits do we need to, to, to describe these dynamics? And in theory, that could mean that I could trade off my complexity in space for complexity in time, and you would not be able to distinguish that. Exactly. But if you, let's say, if um, we... we, we um, so we have a matrix, a spatial temporal matrix of activation. So let's say on the y-axis we have sources, space, and on the x-axis we have time. And then you can uh, concatenate this matrix, uh, either in time or space, building up a vector. And then you run your algorithmic complexity on the vector. And uh, it doesn't matter whether you do it in time or space. If the structure is complex, then you have high complexity. Otherwise, you don't. So, so it doesn't really matter whether you do it in time or space, exactly. you get the same result. But then how, so what do you find in, in the subjects that you look at? Uh, so we found uh, that when you are uh, awake, you have, uh, wherever you stimulate the brain, whatever the intensity uh, or the target area, you have a level of complexity which is very reproducible across stimulating areas, subjects and intensity of stimulations. So we have, let's say, with the current algorithm, we're working on a 0 0.3 level. These are, it's a complex way of getting to this number, but there is a normalization also, but it's a 0 0.3, uh, maximum complexity being one. And this is uh, typically of, typical of wakefulness, empirically, but just by running experiments. And then when you put somebody asleep, either naturally or with anesthetics, you go down to one or below one regularly. Point one. Point one, sorry. Mm -hmm. Point one, exactly. So, uh, and, and this is very, very reproducible. So we rely on these main experiments and uh, empirical tests. And for now, we never saw an overlap between wakefulness and sleep or anesthesia. And I'm talking about across subjects. It's not only within subjects. So you could tell based on this number whether somebody is asleep or awake. And this is a good starting point to move to patients and, uh, and just test the measure in patients and say, okay, I don't know where this patient is because I don't have clues behaviorally and let's see where the number puts the patient. 
so this would be the idea, but of course it takes time and there are many, many experiments to run. Because after all, if this method is good or not, only time will tell and several experiments. Mm -hmm. If you only find once that an awake subject has a complexity of 0 0.1, then there's something wrong. So. So, now, so your brain operates now at 0.3 complexity, understand. So what are the units of, of this? Your, your brain is 0.3. Yeah. And then what? <laughs> What's the unit that we're using for that? Uh, well, it's... Uh, it's Maximini uh, unit. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's... Well, they could be bits, or but it's normalized, so I think it's adimensional. It's, Okay. So it's just uh, it's just a number. All right. So so your brain operates at point three. Mine is now operating at its usual uh, point two level. Um, I, I never exceed uh, point two. Uh, but now, uh, c can your brain ever be at point four? Well, this honestly, mm, I don't know. There is variability. I mean, there is a there is a small window where you have where awake subjects are. For now, huh? we have, we have tested like. Uh, probably 30 subjects in different areas, and the range is 0 0.25, 0 0.4. So I agree, there is a huge variation within wakefulness. Whether this is due to uh, the way you're stimulating the brain or the way you're recording, I'm sure this is due to technical and uh, variability and to error measurements in the air. And there is, of course, variability. And I don't think this correlates with anything. Okay. I don't see. I don't think a 0 0.4 is more conscious than a 0 0.3. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no reason to think about that, and so on. The evidence we have, and we really based our work on experimental evidence, is that when you fall asleep, you go to 0 0.1, and there's no way you can be awake with 0 0.1. Uh, it never happened, and uh, the and when you're anesthetized, you never go to 0 point above 0 0.25. Mm -hmm. So that's the only thing I can say, and I wouldn't bet. That this number uh, is so meaningful in terms of you know that it doesn't correlate with fine scale levels changes mm -hmm. in the level of conscience. It's a brutal thing, mm -hmm. and it just tells you okay is this table empty? Is it made of wood? Is it made of uh, thing? Is it a musical instrument mm -hmm. with different chords that are resonating, or I don't know glass? Well, is there an upper bound to it? Would you say there's an upper bound to this measure of? of brain complexity for the human brain? Ah, we never exceeded, I mean, again, empirically, we never exceeded 0 0.4. Okay. I don't know whether this is meaningful or mm -hmm. not, but that's All right. a fact. But the other thing which I found interesting, and which is sort of hidden, if you, if you quantify it in these terms, was the spatial dimension. Um, so in your talk, you show data where actually also the, the, the spatial distribution of activity is actually rather attenuated in sleep Yes. And much broader in, in wakefulness. Yes. So, so what's that telling us about this ability for differentiation and integration? I think the spatial distribution and the extent of the involvement uh, speaks for, of course, uh, integration, uh, which is a key factor, and I think it's uh, definitely um, necessary. Uh, but uh, what we saw is that integration is not enough because you can have uh, a widespread involvement of the cortex, when you stimulate hard uh, with high-intensity pulses, for instance, in sleep, uh, but um, but if this but this pattern is very simple, so it is not enough to have a widespread involvement of the cortex. This involvement needs to be 
rich and uh, differentiated and specific. So uh, otherwise, algorithmic complexity is low. So if you have a nearest neighbor propagation of a wave of activity uh, that involves the old cortex, this is a very simple thing to describe and it's very predictable and you don't need many bits. And this is actually what happens sometimes during sleep on anesthesia. So again, uh, it's a balance between integration and differentiation. So integration alone is not enough. You need to have specificity and functional differentiation, meaning that if I hit the circuit in a certain way, I need to have a specific response involving some areas with a complex temporal pattern also. So, But in these, in these spatial patterns, do you see that when you move from wakefulness to sleep and back to wakefulness, that particular subsystems are more engaged than others, or is it a more diffuse kind of uh, dispersion that you see? Uh, well, actually, the uh, common feature 